0: something inspiring when you listen to the garden question podcast when southern living's grumpy gardener speaks people listen hello i'm your host craig mcmanus for more than 40 years steve bender has strived to make gardening fun his writings about southern gardens and his hands in the dirt experience are sought after by beginning and expert gardeners Steve takes great joy in answering your garden questions every day at Southern Living Blog and the Grumpy Gardener page on Facebook. Steve is quoted often, usually in disdained tones, since he coined the term crepe murder. His book, Pass Along Plants, co-authored with Felder Rushing, was named the best written garden book of 1994 by the Garden Writers of America. His book, The Grumpy Gardener, is an amusing and informative guide to plants and gardening culled from a compilation of Grumpy Gardener blog posts, selected articles from Southern Living mixed with a lot of new stuff. During his tenure at Southern Living, Steve edited a number of gardening books for Southerners, including the Southern Living Garden Book. We'll celebrate one year of podcasting without missing a single week. By bringing you this episode 52 The Grumpy Gardener Speaks with Steve Bender. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at The Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Steve, what do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape?
1: I think the main thing is plan before you plant. Just don't go out there and you go to the garden and say, oh, that's pretty. I'll bring some of that home. Oh, that's pretty. I'll bring some of that home. Then you get home and you go, now, what am I going to do with all this stuff? Think about how are you going to use this space? Who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for yourself? or Are you doing it for an angry spouse? Are you doing it for your neighbors? Are you doing it hoping to get in a magazine? You need to really make a clear estimate of how much you're willing to put into this garden. Uh, how much time, how much money are you willing to maintain it? How long do you plan on living there? Because it makes a big difference if you're planning a garden and you know that you're gonna move and sell the house in three years, or if you're planning on being there for 20 years. Plan before you plant
0: planting the mature height, does that make a difference on your maintenance?
1: Oh yeah, it makes a big difference on your maintenance. Anytime you're going to plant anything that's woody, like a shrub or a tree, you always need to find out what is the mature width and height of that tree or shrub, because otherwise, if you stay there for 10 years, instead of having a house with shrubs in front, you're going to have shrubs with a house in back. A lot of people really don't check that out, and I've made some serious mistakes myself in that regard. azaleas in front of my house when I moved in. They're called Southern Indica azaleas. And they're the kind that you see usually planted around plantations and mansions in the South. Well, unfortunately, I don't live in a plantation or a mansion. And so these things can get eight, nine, 10 feet tall and wide. And I planted them in front of my window and I soon started to hate those things because they took a lot of maintenance, just keeping them down to size. And they would have hidden all of you out my front windows. Last year, I just got really disgusted, got out there with my wife, and we dug them up and threw them all away and planted something better.
0: You pushed them farther away from the house.
1: Well, I thought I had planted them far away from the house. I had not planted them far enough away. I used to have a bed of flowers in in front of them, and the azaleas ate that up. They ate up all the space that I had planned for a mixed garden. It was a bad choice. I really didn't think about how big they were going to be in five years. Sometimes it's also not the fault of the person buying the plant, but it's the person who's selling the plant. Because when you look at the mature size on a plant tag, figure out that it's always going to get bigger because it will. I planted a crepe myrtle in front of my house. It's hybrid. It's called Sioux. It's Sioux like the Sioux Indians. When I looked at the mature height back then, they said 10 to 15 feet. I said, great, that's perfect. I got just the spot for it. Well, apparently that plant had never read the tag because now it's close to 30 feet tall. I never would have planted it there if I had known it's going to grow that tall. Do a little research, especially with plants that you're going to plant around your house. If you're going to plant them next to the front door, if you're going to plant them in front of windows. I see people doing things like planting uh, Leland Cypress in front of their house. Leland Cypress is great when it comes in a three-gallon container, but the thing grows 50 feet tall and about 10 feet wide. It's going to eat up your house, and there's no Way you're going to be able to prune something that's 50 feet tall. Keep that in mind. If you've got a nice house, don't hide it behind a wall of plants. (laughs) It's like a living great wall of china in front of your house. Not a great idea. Well, how
0: did you solve the crepe myrtle height issue? Did you crank up your chainsaw?
1: Well, no. I don't believe in the practice called crepe murder, which is very popular here in the South and other places where people will go out usually in late winter, early spring with a chainsaw and just saw off the top of the plant and take it down to about four or five feet tall and leave these really thick, ugly stubs just looks awful. One of the things about crepe myrtles that I love is the architectural shape of the trunks. I prune mine to about four or five trunks. And in the case of the crepe myrtle that grew too tall, I would have had to reduce it to stumps to get it down. I didn't want to do that. So what I did was I selectively prune. I prune every branch back to the trunk that grows towards the roof or comes anywhere close to the house. On the back of my crepe myrtle that's near the house, if you walk out the front door, it looks like I've cut the whole back of it off, which I have. And it grows straight up. None of the crepe myrtle touches any part of the house. From the front, you can't tell the difference. All you have to do is keep with it. Do a little bit of pruning every year. I'll tell you, I've got a really easy way for people to find out how to properly prune an existing crepe myrtle. It's a story I wrote years ago for Southern Living, and you can Google it. It's still there. It's called Crepe Myrtle Pruning Step-by-Step. Step. Go to there, then you'll see the title of my story. And it's how I prune a big crepe myrtle so it looks pretty every year every step comes with a illustrative picture and you get to see a before shot of the crepe myrtle when it's come up overgrown and then finished shot when it's properly pruned it answers a lot of questions that people have
0: so do you have a lawn are you lawnless
1: uh, no I'm not lawnless uh, yes I do have a lawn mainly in the front because it's the only area of sun that I have there's a lot of people out there that are lawn haters hitting on me about how high maintenance it is and how bad for the environment most Most of these people, I find out, are people who live on the West Coast where it doesn't rain very much. I will agree that if you live in an area that gets, let's say, 20 inches of rain per year or less, a lawn's not a good idea for you. It does take up a lot of water that really you can't spare. But here, when I live in the Southeast, we get lots of rain. Last year, we had 70 inches of rain here, which is a bit much. Really, I think this whole thing about hating a lawn is overblown. I think there's a lot of advantages of having a lawn. One of them is if you're in a high rainfall area, it's a great way to control erosion because your lawn will not wash away. Second of it is that it gives you a place to play with your kids. Where are they going to go? Where are you going to send them? You're going to send them to a shopping mall? That's not such a great idea. I do have a lawn. It's not a big lawn, but I like the way it looks And as far as the maintenance goes, this is vastly overblown problem for lawns. All you have to do is water it occasionally. You go out there and you mow it once a week. What is wrong with mowing? You know, people are always going to gyms. They're paying to join all these gyms and do all this exercise. Well, just mow your lawn once a week. That's good exercise. You're out in the fresh air. I am not a lawn hater. I think it's appropriate in a lot of times, and it's inappropriate in other places of the country. You just have to make the right choice for where you live.
0: Well, are you bagging your clippings and the leaves when they fall?
1: No, absolutely not. Bagging clippings to me is really dumb because what you're doing to start off for most people in the springtime is you're putting on fertilizer, right? Okay, what does a fertilizer do? Well, the fertilizer encourages the grass to grow all these nice green leaves. When you go and you cut the grass and you bag all the clippings, basically what you're doing is you're taking and bagging all the fertilizer that you just spent 50 bucks on or more to put on your lawn and you're throwing it away. That is just incredibly dumb. The best thing to do is get yourself a mulching mower. Mulching mower, you run it over the grass. It takes all the clippings and it chops them into fine particles. They drop right onto the grass. It's not a maintenance issue. It doesn't look messy. But what it does is it recycles all those nutrients that you just spent all this money putting on your lawn and it goes back into and feeds the lawn even more. If you'll just mulch those clippings with a mulching mower on your lawn, you'll find that not only is your lawn healthier, you're going to have to fertilize a whole lot less because you're not taking all that nitrogen phosphorus and potassium that you put out in the spring and you're not dumping it into the trash. That's a big thing on mulching mowers. The other thing that's really good about mulching mowers, I see people, it just drives me crazy. When all the leaves fall in autumn, they don't want all those leaves, and rightly so. It's just lying all over the lawn, makes you look like you've got an abandoned house there, and it can smother your grass. Some people will rake them into the curb in the streets and then hope that they wash down the gutter into the storm drains. Yeah, that's a great idea. If you will just take your mulching mower, you can do one of two things. First, run it over all the uh, leaves. You can put your bagger on if you want. When you put your bagger on, it's going to pick up all those leaves. It's a lot faster and easier than raking. And you can make compost or mulch out of that. Chopped leaves are great mulch for garden beds. They look good. They stay in place. They slowly decompose. They attract earthworms, which loosens your soil. And it provides a lot of nutrients for your plants. And it's free. It's free. Why throw all that stuff away and put it in a landfill where it's never gonna do any good? The other thing is if you don't want a bag, all you can do is just run over your lawn with all the leaves on it and like your clippings, it's gonna chop those into fine particles and it's gonna feed your grass. It's a lot less work, it's a lot less time, and it's so simple if people will just do it.
0: With the 70 inches of rain that you got this year, uh, I don't guess you really had to worry about watering What is your thoughts on not watering enough on container plants or lawns or any plant, really?
1: Well, I should say that 70 inches is a bit of an aberration. Depends on if we get hurricanes or tropical storms, things go way up. Our average, though, is about 54, 55 inches here. The problem is the clouds don't release it on a set schedule. One week, you could get eight inches of rain, and then it could go four weeks without raining. You do have to water, even in places where you get a lot of rainfall fall. One of the things I think that as far as gardening goes, people make a mistake in is not accounting for the different watering needs of plants. It's a lot different when you're talking about watering your lawn Versus watering annuals or watering trees or watering shrubs. For people who have in ground irrigation, you got to know that the amount of time you have to have that system on to the water, the grass well, is a lot different than what it's going to take to water trees and shrubs well. Their roots are a lot deeper and are a lot more spread out. Don't count on your in-ground sprinklers to do a good job of watering your trees and shrubs. For that, you really have to soak the ground around the root zone. Best way to do that is with a hose. And then if you're having a drought, you need to water deeply. Watering the top half inch of the soil is pretty much useless. And a lot of times people don't realize how long it takes for water to get down to the roots. So, if you're putting on your sprinklers for 20 minutes three times a week, it's going to do nothing to water your shrubs and your trees if you're in a dry spell. That water's all going to evaporate before it gets down to the roots and does any good.
0: It seems like you get thousands and thousands of questions every month. Yes. It's admirable that you're answering every one of those questions, and they have to be from all different regions. How do you give the correct answer for the correct region?
1: Well, a lot of it comes from just experience of gardening for 45 years. A lot of it is trial and error. You learn by doing. You can get a lot of information off the Internet, and that's great. But you also have to evaluate it carefully and say, where is the person who's giving this information live? Are their conditions anywhere close to what mine are? I have friends from all over the country that I communicate with. A lot of times it's online, and I'll ask them their opinions of stuff. For example, if somebody lives in Las Vegas and wants to know three great bushes that'll grow for them in Las Vegas, I have to think carefully and do some research because Las Vegas, if you're getting 15 inches of rain and it's 115 degrees every day for months, what I might suggest could burn up for you. I really have to do some research on some of these places. Generally, there are certain principles that that apply no matter where you live. Choose the right plant for the right spot. Look around your neighborhood, see what people are growing and what they're not growing. If there's a plant that you love, that you've seen online, and no one in your neighborhood is growing it, it probably means somebody did and it died. Ask your neighbors, ask other friends, go to the local garden centers, ask them. Not necessarily the big box stores, because the big box stores seldom have anybody who knows a plant from a screwdriver. If you go to the garden centers, they're going to have people there that are trained that know. They can answer your questions. They can make suggestions for you. And then go around the Internet, look at gardens that you like from your area, from your part of the country. There's a lot of university information centers from state-grant universities, like your state university. They usually have a big horticulture department. You can go to the university website wherever you live, go to the extension service, and they'll have a lot of practical information and tell you which is the best variety of a tomato or an apple or a peach or pepper or whatever. What's the best variety that's adapted to our area? You'll find it's easier than you think to get good information. You just have to wade through all the noise and get to the golden nugget.
0: Part of choosing the right plant would be interpreting the climate zone that you're actually planting in. How do you do that?
1: Usually when you buy a plant, you'll have a plant tag and it'll tell you climate zones it's appropriate for. You can also find, if you will, you can just Google the name of a plant, put the name of the plant and then put zone. It will tell you which zones you are in. Uh, This all goes back to the U.S. Department of Agriculture coming up with a zone map. Basically, it started off as being a cold hardiness zone can go all the way in the United States from zone two, way up right next to Canada, practically, all the way down to zone 10, which is South Florida. Each of those zones plants are rated for how cold hearted they are. The thing about that is it doesn't really take into account how much heat and humidity they can take in the summertime. Second thing is the zones go horizontally across the United States from the East Coast to the West Coast. Let's say we're talking about Zone 8. That's where I live. Zone 8, the growing conditions in Zone 8 in coastal Georgia are vastly different from the growing conditions in Zone 8 in California. The soil is completely different. The rainfall is completely different. The humidity during the summertime is completely different. The change in temperature between the afternoon and nighttime is completely different. All those things factor in. I can always tell when somebody moves from California to where I live in Alabama by what they plant because it's something that's going to die here. Don't assume that because something is rated as zone 8A in California or Oregon or someplace like that, and it's rated zone 8A in Georgia or Alabama, that it's going to do that well because it probably won't. That's the fallacy of using the climate zone maps only. You have to do a little bit more research. Let's say you live in Ohio. You could just go and Google evergreen shrubs, the flower, they're good for Ohio. You can find good information there. I would always default to the university site because the extension part of the university site has very trained people They know what they're doing. They will give you plants that are tailored to where you live.
0: When you get plants that are more suited for your region, you're not having to spray them as often.
1: Generally, I would say yes. If you're talking about this whole thing about native versus exotic plants, native plants are evolved together with all the insects that you have in the area, with all the fungi that you had other problems with the soils that you have. In general, you could say that native plants are easier than exotic ones. But that's not always true. There are native plants that are difficult to grow. They're finicky. And there are exotic plants from places like China and Korea and Japan that love your climate. Or Australia, if you're in California or Arizona, Australia plants, they do great. So what I tell people is don't get so hung up on i can only plant what's native you should always in my view choose the right plant for the right spot if that turns out to be a plant that's not native to your state it can still be a really good plant for you it could even be better than what a native plant would be native plants aren't always the right choice let me tell you why what is a native plant what does that mean does it mean that it's native to North America versus Europe or Asia? Well, that's a big area. What's going to grow again out on the West Coast or grow in Minnesota or grow in Louisiana? Those are all native to North America, but that doesn't mean anything. Let's break it down further. Is it native to your region? Well, your region, the Southeast, the Northeast, the Northwest, again, soils, temperature, climate, all are very different. So you can say, all right, well, is it native to my state? Well, now you're getting somewhere. The state is probably a lot smaller than a region. But then you could have in the West, like the say, North Carolina, you could have the Appalachian Mountains and a lot of altitude, three, 4,000 feet. Or you could go out to the Outer Banks, have a very different experience. The soil is all sandy. It's hot in the summertime. It doesn't cool off all that much at night. What's going to grow in the mountains of North Carolina is not necessarily going to be good for the beach. This whole thing about I can only plant native plants, I just don't believe in that at all. I think you plant the right plant for the right spot. A lot of people have an idea that things that come from across the ocean, they don't work well with our native ecosystem. Bees won't come to the flowers of these plants that come from Japan or China or whatever. They absolutely will. They absolutely are good plants for your native ecosystem that didn't evolve where you live. You have to do a little research, but don't just blanketly say native plants are always better because that's not true.
0: How does that work with microclimates, or is that a different thing?
1: Microclimate is usually referred to as a very small area within wherever it is that you live. Let's say your town, your city, encompassing all the suburbs. Let's say it all falls under zone rating 7. That doesn't mean that every place in there is a 7, there are microclimates and it's the way the air moves. It has all to do with your topography. Do you live in a flat place? Do you live in a hilly place? Do you live in a windy place? Do you get a lot of sun in the summer? Do you get a lot of sun in the winter? All these variables combined can create what we call a microclimate, which means that a tropical vine or a semi-tropical vine, you couldn't grow it. It's not appropriate for Zone 7. But if you're growing it in a courtyard where you've blocked the wind, if you're growing it up next to your house where it's protected from the winter wind, but it has a lot of reflected heat, it comes from masonry or something like that, you may be able to get away with growing something that's not technically cold-hardy in your zone. So that's what we call a microclimate. Lots of things factor in there. Gardeners are always trying to cheat the zones. We all see these plants that are so beautiful. The foliage is so great. The flowers are so great. Don't I wish I could grow that here? A lot of times you can if you have arranged your garden in such a fashion that it makes a part of the garden warmer in winter than the other part. It all has to do with airflow Has to do with reflected heat. It all has to do with the direction of sunshine. It all has to do with soil moisture. But you can cheat a zone every once in a while. Another easy way to cheat your zone is to grow in containers because it's so flexible. I have a lot of plants I grow in containers that aren't winter hardy outdoors. So I grow with them. When it gets to where it's gonna freeze outside and I know they're not gonna take a freeze, I bring them indoors. Fortunately, I have a garage area. My garage doors have windows in them so they get sufficient light there to thrive all winter. For instance, I have a huge Sago palm that you would normally only see down in zone nine and zone 10 because it would just freeze otherwise. And I have it in a container and I love the way it looks in the summertime in the wintertime, when I know the temperature is going to go below 20 degrees, I bring it inside.
0: If you have a spot designated for it.
1: The other good thing about containers is you don't necessarily have to have just one spot for it. You can have a spot that's suitable one year. Then you decide, well, I'd like to put it up on the deck this year. You can move it around. Containers are great because if you have a really lousy soil, like here, we're always complaining about the clay soil and it's always so mucking and heavy and it doesn't drain well. The one thing that a container lets you do is start with perfect soil from the beginning. You just put in bagged potting soil. It's not going to be heavy. You know it's going to retain moisture. You know it's going to drain well. It's going to provide an environment for an incredible array of different plants. You can just move them around. If the place that you had planned to put it is not getting enough sun, we'll take the pot and put it in a sunnier spot taking too much space in one spot, you can move it to the ideal spot for it. If you get tired of the plants you've got in a container or it dies, you can always replace it with something that's better. So I'm really big on container gardening because plants actually, I've found most plants grow better in containers, whether it's an annual or a perennial or a shrub or even a, a small tree like a Japanese maple. They grow better in containers than they do in the ground because you can control the conditions a lot better. If you can fix the soil to a condition that plant likes, you've got 90% of 100% of what it needs.
0: There seems to be a lot of talk now about GMOs. What is your thoughts on that?
1: That always kills me, this fear, this pervasive fear about GMOs. People are so afraid of them without really knowing the science that goes into that. Think somehow if they eat GMOs, it's going to turn them into zombies. Their hair is going to start growing blue this is not a fact. GMOs, in my view, are very good things. For instance, if you don't like spraying pesticides on your plants, in a lot of cases, GMOs allow you to grow things in your area that you couldn't otherwise grow without doing it because it makes them more disease resistant. The reason that we use GMOs is because in a lot of times, plants become susceptible to diseases and insects. And there's no really good way to control that without dousing them in pesticides. A lot of what we eat nowadays is GMOs, whether you like it or not. If you're eating any product that comes from corn, you're eating a GMO. If you have any soybean product, you're eating a GMO. If you have anything that's made from sugar beets, that's GMO. There has never once been any Case that I know that anyone has been harmed in the slightest by consuming a product that has GMO anything in it. People are so afraid. They go online and look at all these websites. So what's happened is industry has found out about this. They know that people really don't understand what a GMO is. A GMO is a plant in which perhaps a single gene in its chromosome has been replaced by a gene from elsewhere. It may be from an unrelated plant. Sometimes there even can come from insects or something like that, but what it does it controls a single vulnerability of that plant to an insect pest or a virus or a fungus. And it allows the plant to grow. That's all it does. It makes it easier to grow that plant. What people don't realize is, let's say you like bananas. Bananas are the most wildly grown crop in the world. They're grown in big plantations. Well, the banana that you eat today, that you probably call the Chiquita banana, is not the one that used to be grown. The one that started off growing, it died out. It became susceptible to a virus. All the plants were absolutely just dying. What they had to do was find another plant that was resistant to this virus, and they did. And so all the bananas, now that we have a Chiquita banana, big, long yellow ones that you see in the stores, they're all the second great banana crop. However, they're also have discovering a lot of disease problems. And now they're searching for a gene that they can insert into the genome of bananas that will make them resistant to the new viruses and new diseases that come about. So they won't have to be doused in pesticides. If we don't do this, it's entirely possible that we may lose this crop worldwide. There won't be any bananas. Another example is papayas. If it were not for GMOs, we would not have papayas today because there's this disease called ring spot virus. It killed all the papaya trees or would have. There was no spray you could use until they inserted a gene into its genome that made it resistant. If it weren't for this, we wouldn't have papayas. Here's the thing. People are so afraid of GMOs that the industry all over has decided that anything that they produce and can sell will sell better if they say non-GMO. All these products out there that never had GMOs in them and never will, it all says non-GMO on the label, but it never had GMOs in there in the first place. I mean, it's almost like you could go to the store and buy yourself a juice glass. And on the outside, it would say non-GMO glass. Glass is not a GMO product. Never has been. Never will be.
0: TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. What is your earliest garden memory?
1: That was a tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) When I was growing up, I was, I don't know, I was just a kid, maybe about five, six years old. I was just learning to ride the bicycle. My father had just planted this beautiful little dogwood tree in the middle of the lawn out in the front yard. Of course, he loved dogwood trees and I love dogwood trees because they're a native tree and they're so beautiful with the flowers in the spring and the leaves in the fall and everything. So the first thing I remember, he planted it right in the middle of the lawn. There's plenty of space on either side. And he was teaching me how to ride my bike. So he put me up on the bike. And by that time, all the training wheels were off and everything. Should have gone smoothly. He put me on the seat, put my feet on the pedals. He says, now go off and ride. There is about 0% chance I was going to go anywhere else. Except directly over (laughs) his newly planted dogwood tree. I wiped that thing out. I mean, I had 25 feet on either side, but anytime you put an obstacle in somebody's, it's like a skier hitting a tree. (laughs) You got plenty of room to go around the tree, but no fate (laughs) catches up. And I annihilated my father's dogwood tree. Fortunately, he didn't hold it against me. Yeah. Uh, Did Loyov? I think so, actually. I think. It knocked it over, but I think he was playing the good doctor and I think he straightened it back up. Yeah, I think it did survive me and the bicycle. Not much else did, but I think the dogwood tree did.
0: Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession?
1: You know, I think it all goes back to growing up with my dad. He was a big gardener. We had a little ridiculous vegetable garden in back that was about six foot square that really was a ridiculous garden to grow. Our first crop we grew back there was corn, (laughs) which is the dumbest thing you could ever plant in a residential setting because it's not very efficient. So in a six by six foot garden, watered it all summer and we weeded it and we checked it for any bugs or anything like that. I think we probably got about four ears, little ears of corn after a whole six months, seven months of labor. So that was a stupendously stupid idea. I did get really into growing plants after watching him do all of his gardens. My mother was also a gardener. And I just got really interested in walking through the woods, getting to know all the names of the plants, getting to see the kind of conditions that they grew in and trying to grow different things myself, just became really intrigued with it. By the time I went to college, I knew all the botanical names, and I knew how to choose the right plants simply from observing how they grew in the wild. started off as a hobby at first. It wasn't until after I got out of college that it actually became a profession. Until then, I was just a hobby gardener.
0: Now, you've had quite a career and still having a career at Southern Living Magazine. How did you step from hobbyist to a garden communicator?
1: Well, when I went to college, gardening at that point was still a hobby. I majored in history in English, and I wanted to be a writer. But when I graduated, there wasn't much call for historians and writers. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to school after a few years and studied horticulture graduated, so I knew all the scientific, all the technical things about gardening, but I still wanted to write. I was looking for a way that was good for me because I always thought it's so much better to find a job that you love versus just search for the one that pays the most money. I was searching for a way to combine gardening and writing. The first way I did is I started up a garden column in the local town newspaper. It was a weekly column called the weekend gardener would just talk from person to person and just give them good gardening advice. From there, I joined a professional organization called the Garden Writers Association, and I got to meet people who were writing about gardening professionally from all over the country. Then I started meeting magazine editors, knowing that they wanted people from different parts of the country to write gardening articles. I contacted them and I submitted writing. I started getting published in gardening magazines. And then I started working at a very big nursery in Maryland, probably one of the biggest in the country, called Homestead Gardens. It did everything. I mean, it was a wholesale grower. It was a retailer. Plant offerings were huge. I got exposed to all sorts of practical, different kinds of gardening that went along with my college training. One opening that I'd always dreamed about because I wanted to marry gardening with writing, I found out that there was an opening for a new garden editor at this magazine called Southern Living. And Southern Living was the largest regional magazine in the country at the time. And I was living in Maryland. They had a group of garden writers, probably about four people, and they had somebody from Florida and they had somebody from South Carolina and they had somebody from Georgia. But they had nobody that had what they called the Upper South gardening experience. You know, people in Virginia, people in Maryland, people from the cooler parts of the South. I went down and applied. They could tell I was different than everybody else when I got there because I was dressed horribly. (laughs) I sent them some columns that I'd done, and it was different from what they were doing because I always liked to mix humor into my columns. I always liked to mix humor. I like to tell people about things that I tried and failed at because that's how you learn. And I wanted people to think of gardening as a fun exercise, to really get out there and enjoy things. Because if you're not having fun out there, you're wasting your time. And I wanted people to think of it as not being such a serious thing. It's okay if plants die. It's not your fault all the time. Sometimes it's the plant's fault. So don't give up. Don't be heartbroken because it dies. Think of it as a chance for you to try something different, maybe that you've always wanted to try. Put something different and better in its place. Death of a plant can be a good thing. Long story short, (laughs) it's actually long, I know. They hired me and I worked at Southern Living on staff for 33 years. Traveled all over the place, got to know all sorts of people, did stories on all these different gardens. That's what made my career. I never would have imagined that I would be in an office job and getting to travel frequently all over the South and outside the South. See gardens all over the world. I never would have imagined I could make a career out of that, but I did.
0: Is there one garden that still sticks in your mind and is special to you?
1: That's a tough question because there are so many great gardens out there, both private and public. I would say just because where I grew up, there's a couple of gardens I love going to see that are in Maryland and Delaware, which, by the way, was in our coverage area. Sounds weird, but it was in our coverage area for Southern Living. They were gardens that were started by the DuPont family. One of them is right across the Delaware, Pennsylvania line called Longwood Gardens, which has these incredible three acres of plants under glass. The displays are simply phenomenal. Everything is in its place. You get to see plants from all over the world. It's always beautiful. It just amazes you. The one negative about it is when you go home after touring Longwood Gardens, you always feel really bad about your own, like I'm a total failure. They have these glass conservatories that are just absolutely phenomenal, world-class. And a second garden that's near there that's actually in Delaware, it's also a DuPont garden. It's called Winterthur, and Winterthur is completely different. There the native landscape rules, and the trees rule. And the wildflowers rule. And it's all about showing you all the different native plants with some exotics sprinkled in. You'll see the most incredible mature trees, these forests that are absolutely stunning all the time. You'll see meadows of wildflowers. They'll have their azalea garden. It's just phenomenal. You can spend a day touring each one of these gardens because they're completely different. They're the ones that really got me seeing the beauty of the native landscape and then the beauty of the kind of controlled landscape where you have plants from all around the world used very, very well together, extremely well in design.
0: Now, you've written a good many books with Southern Living. Do you want to tell us about them?
1: First book that I did, I did with a friend of mine named Felder Rushing. It's called Pass Along Plants you You can still get that on Google. We published it back in 1994, so that gives you an idea of how ancient I am. We wanted to write about plants, strange, weird, unusual plants that people grew up with, and they shared it from neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, passed it down through generations of the family. And each of these plants had something novel about it. It might have had a, a weird flower or crazy leaves, did strange things. It might have been a family heirloom, a variety that they'd had in their family for generations and generations. And they all had an interesting story to go behind it. But you couldn't get them at garden centers because they couldn't be mass produced. So the way that they would get into people's hands is by being shared from a person to a person, friend to a friend. And so even today in my garden, I have all these plants that were given to me by friends that I met. The great thing about it, when you walk through your garden and you see that plant, like a spider lily bloom or an Irish blooming or something, you automatically go back to the time in which you were given that plant. You remember where you were the time you got it, and the person you gave it to. Now, even though a lot of these people that gave me plants have passed away, I walk through my garden and I can say, oh, there's Jane's plant, there's Margaret's plant. And it helps you remember all these different people. It's just a really nice way, I think, to connect people with generations and uh, friends. And so that came out in 1994. It won an award because we made it funny, but also had interesting stories. Other books I've done are Done for Southern Living. If you come to the South, from other parts of the country and don't know what grows here, you need to get the new Southern Living Garden book, covers blue, has pictures of blue hydrangeas. But even if you live here, it has descriptions and advice for over 7,000, 8,000 plants. If you have questions about that, that's really good. It also has a plant selection guide that has all different criteria, good plants for shade, good plants for sun, good plants for dry spots, good plants for wet spots, plants that are good for making hedges. Plants that are great shade trees. You can look all that up. So there's hundreds of those listed. It helps you choose. My last book that I did that came out a couple of years ago is simply called The Grumpy Gardener. That developed from my column that comes out every month in Southern Living called The Grumpy Gardener, which is a question and answer thing. People write in. They ask me questions about whatever's gone wrong in their garden on a variety of topics. I answer all the questions. Just for me to you, my experience and growing them. I use their real names. I don't make up questions. <laughs> and I also have a thing on the page called the Grumpy Gripe. How I got the name Grumpy Gardeners is because I'm always very direct with people. If you tell me you want to do something that's ridiculous or impossible or in really bad taste, I will tell you. so to know that you're getting honesty when you're talking to me uh, and that's why they call me the grumpy gardener because i always seem to be growling about this somebody wants to know for instance their tree didn't leaf out last year will it leaf out this year (laughs) (laughs) i said i said yeah sure it's like somebody rising from the dead no it's dead take it out plants don't skip a year of life so just bite the bullet that sort of thing The Grumpy Gardener has all these kind of funny stories. It's very, very opinionated about things I like, things I don't like, whether it happens to be gardening practices or plants and stuff like that. The easiest way to get that is just to Google The Grumpy Gardener book. You can get it off of Amazon, just like the pass-along plants.
0: You've told us so many funny garden stories already. Do you have a special funny garden or landscape story for us?
1: I got two for you. Okay. My first year at Southern Living, long, long ago, I had taken a trip up to Maryland, up to Baltimore. My mission was to find gardens that we could photograph for garden stories in Southern Living. It's the first time I'd ever done that. So I contacted this landscape architect and I asked him, you know, if I come up there, can I just drive around with you for a day and you can show me examples of your work? And it might be something that we could make a big garden feature inside the living. So we said, okay. Back then, everything was pretty much formal. I always had to look businesslike. Here I am, I'm going out looking at these gardens and I'm wearing dress shirt, dress pants, got my good leather shoes on, wearing a tie, wearing a jacket and everything, There's all the things that people don't wear anymore. I'd like to have a big shout out to Steve Jobs for getting rid of jackets and ties. Looked like I was a banker following this guy around. I had my notepad, and I was taking down all the things that he was saying and noting what was good about here. This would be a good time to come back and photograph it. So we walk around the backyard, and I was looking down at my notepad, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw we were approaching what I thought was this slate terrace. So I was just going around and walking around, and as I took a step forward, I discovered it was not a slate terrace at all. It was a pool cover. Pool was filled. So I stepped off onto the pool cover (laughs) and immediately gave way. And I went into the pool up over my knees. (laughs) (laughs) And I can imagine what this landscape architect, what is this idiot? I'm I'm with it. So, I mean, you can imagine how embarrassing that was. Anyway, so I, I climbed back out of the pool. I said, excuse me for a minute, sir. I walk to the side and i have to empty all the water out of my shoes while trying to maintain some semblance of dignity like you know everybody just walks into a pool when they're doing interviews and it's like this this guy is a dope but that was like my first trip with suddenly I, I said please don't tell them i did this please don't tell them they'll let them send me out again Second story, it was years later, we were photographing this really nice garden up in the mountains of North Carolina. I was there with the photographer, and it was a long day. There was lots of things that we had to photograph, and we had to wait for just the right light to photograph. Typically, on a day at Southern Living, the day starts before dawn because we want to get the great morning light to get there before the sun comes up. So we can be there at the perfect time to shoot the morning. The sun's at the perfect angle. The quality of the lights got that nice warm look. So we would start really early. Our days would go until sundown because then the light's coming from another different angle. Part of the garden might look perfect then very long days. We had been at this place, like I say, since the sunrise. And we had some shots that we wanted to do right before the sun goes down It's in a very long day. So it's about 4.30 in the afternoon. We can't shoot anything because the sun is just not right. So I said to my photographer, Ralph, I said, hey, Ralph, I could really go for some beer now. I think it's cocktail hour. So we went into the kitchen and we got ourselves a couple of big bottles of beer. Oh, that was so good. That just hit the spot. I went back outside, and I finished about half the bottle of beer. And then Ralph says to me, hey, wait a minute. Look, I found something. It's perfect. Let's go shoot it. Put the beer down on this rock, and we went off to this other part of the garden for about five, six minutes. We got the shot. And then I said, okay, I got to go finish my beer. So I went on I picked up the bottle of beer. I took a big swig out of the bottle and immediately realized something was very, very wrong. Apparently, a giant yellow jacket, while I was gone, had located the beer and was now inside the bottle, oh, no. and I had just transferred the yellow jacket oh, no. to my mouth. Oh, gosh. I spit out beer and yellow jacket in an instant, but it was too slow. Yellow Jacket stung me on my lip. Immediately, my lips started swelling up and swelling up and swelling up. And it was was horrible. Took me inside, put a bag of ice on my lip, which did absolutely no good. Felt sorry for me and everything. I had to drive home. It was like a four-hour drive. I had something important I had to get to. Just as I get to the Georgia-North Carolina line, I get a phone call from the homeowner. Check up on me and if I'm okay. And where are you now? And I said, well, I'm right at the North Carolina state line, said my lip crossed two minutes earlier. (laughs) 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 It took about two days for the lip to go down. Uh, So moral of the story is never leave a beer unattended late in the summer uh, (laughs) where there are yellow jackets. Uh.
0: That's tough. Uh, In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer?
1: Just to start me off, i say with my father just getting me interested in plants and gardening in the first place. As far as garden writing, I would say two people. As far as garden writing goes, one of them would be Henry Mitchell. He was the garden columnist for the Washington Post. He reported about other things. He was always very strict about saying, I'm not just a garden writer. His garden writing was so good. It had a humorous bent to it. It was witty. He really knew what he was talking about. could sympathize with him because he would say stuff like, there's no place on earth that it is good to garden. And what he meant was, there's no ideal place. You're going to face challenges. Get used to it. I just love reading his columns. There's also a naturalist who wrote A Natural History of Plants. His name is Donald Colross Patey. He wrote stories about plants that were like little novels about all these plants. He gave you all the technical information, but he also gave you all the folklore that went around with this plant, its history, how it was used by Native Americans It's medicinal qualities, all of its different uses, the stories that go along with it, how it got into American horticulture. And I was just fascinated reading all these things. Also helps me identify all these plants. And I see when I take my walks through the woods, aha, I know how to tell that plant a sour gum. I know how to tell that from a, a tulip poplar. I know how to tell that from a maple. What was this tree used for historically? Was it used for lumber? Was it used for flooring? Was it used simply as an ornamental? What were its good properties? Did they use it for fence posts because the wood wouldn't rot? All those things and it just made the whole thing about growing plants just fascinating to me. So I would say those are the two biggest as far as my writing career go.
0: What is your most valuable garden mistake?
1: My biggest mistake is, like a lot of gardeners who love plants, I love a plant for a plant's sake. And I also get people sending me a lot of plants. And I hate not being able to put it in, spot my yard, get this vast variety of plants that I collect and I can't bear to throw them away and I can't get anybody to take them from me. So invariably, I plant them in the yard. So I've got one of one thing here, one of another thing here, one of another thing here, one of another thing here. My garden ends up looking like a smorgasbord and my wife hates it. She sees things as being arranged like she would do a room where you have things that work together together. And the whole room must go together. The paint color must go together. The carpet must go together. The furniture must go together. The lamps and everything. Everything is part of the composition. It's there for a reason. And not just because you couldn't bear to throw it away. What I've learned from my wife as she critiques the garden is... I got to get rid of all this hodgepodge, and I've got to think of every part of my garden as a composition and make sure that it all flows and it all seems to have a purpose. And it's not just a collection. It's a creation like a portrait. And that's the best way I can express it.
0: What have you recently learned that you didn't know regarding horticulture?
1: That we're about to be exterminated in Alabama and throughout the entire United States by these insects. One is the murder hornet. Can't get away from that one. Most overhyped thing ever. It's actually native to Japan. It is the world's biggest hornet. It's also the most formidable insect I have ever seen Uh, I used to watch a show called Bug Wars, which they would pit one insect versus another. It was like being a cage match on television and seeing which one would win. This one of them was a Japanese giant hornet, and they matched it up. Bug Wars! Against a big praying mantis. This is for all the marbles, man. So they let these insects see each other. And immediately, the giant hornet pounced on this big praying mantis and bit off its head. (laughs) It's like, ding, ding, that's the match. Giant hornets, they're native to Japan, and that's really where they live. They don't live in the United States. Sometimes what will happen is they hitch a ride. Maybe it's on a boat. Maybe a fertile queen lands on a boat, makes its way across the Pacific, hops off, and then she makes a nest somewhere. People discover these giant hornets, and it may be only one nest with about 50. The authorities are very, very active in exterminating these nests. They don't want them here because they have a very painful sting and they love to destroy honeybees. That's their main prey is honeybees. Well, that'd be horrible to have here. The good news is there's almost no murder hornets in the United States. And anytime they find one, it gets killed. The next big thing we have to worry about is another import from Asia. It's called the Joro spider, J-O-R-O. They've just started showing up in Georgia, and they freak people out because they're huge. These spiders, when they expand their legs, they will fill up the palm of your hand. The legs are like maybe three, three and a half inches long. The abdomen, the body is big, and they build these enormous webs. They can be like 10 feet across, usually build them in trees and shrubs. They're very distinctive because they have these very long, skinny legs, And then the the body of the spider is striped with bright yellow and blue. So you can imagine you're walking along this path and all of a sudden you see this giant yellow and blue spider. I have arachnophobia, like a lot of people. I know what spiders do in the environment, but I want to be as far away from them as possible when they do it. They just creep me out. The good news about this spider is, even though it's going to spread because the climate here is very similar to where it left over there in in Asia, is they're bug eaters. They are non-toxic to people. So it's not like a black widow or a brown recluse. They pose no danger to people other than giving you a heart attack. One swings down on the web and it's right in your face.
0: I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have.
1: In my garden, I have fun and I have peace. I have Fun because I get to try out new things, see how they're going to do. My backyard is mostly woods. My front lawn is sunny and I have flower gardens and a lawn out there. In my backyard, I get to do weird things. I can just have fun. Like, for instance, when it's in the dead of winter and there's hardly any color out there, it drives me crazy. So I have two authentic bottle trees that are cobalt blue milk of magnesia bottles out there that shine in the winter sun. It makes me happy. I also decided that uh, deciduous trees are just not colorful enough (laughs) in the winter. So I went out to the store and I got myself some cans of spray paint and I sprayed trunks of different trees colors. I sprayed some of them blue. I sprayed some of them red. I sprayed the trunk of one of those really nice camellias that cut all the lower end limbs off. I sprayed it plum purple. (laughs) So I have fun back there. It's a non-serious garden and it's just something that lets me piddle around and get out of my wife's hair. It gives me peace because it's a woodland garden between me and my neighbors. And when the leaves come out, I'm completely hidden from my neighbors. I have a raised porch that's probably about 10, 12 feet off the ground. It's screened in, keeps the bugs out, but I can go out there during the summertime. And it's like being up in the canopy of the forest. I call it the best room in the house because I'm absolutely immersed in nature. I've got bird feeders. I get to watch and listen to the birds. You can see all the trees. I can watch them bloom. I can watch them change colors. At night, I get to hear all the crickets. I get to hear the cicadas. I get to hear the tree frogs. I get to hear the railroad horn off in the distance. And it's just a place where you're totally immersed in nature. And so whatever has been bothering me that day, I just go out and I sit out in the best spot in the house, out in nature. I'm immediately relaxed and it's just nowhere else I'd rather be.
0: What did you learn in the last gardening season that you're going to apply to your garden this year?
1: I'm going to get rid of some plants that simply are too much trouble to keep. If I got to prune you every four weeks to keep you from taking over, you're gone. If I have to water you every day, you're gone. If I have to spray you with pesticides with any frequency, You're gone. You got to be pretty self sufficient in my garden because I don't want to suffer just for you. You have to suffer a little for me.
0: I like that. (laughs) I know this is probably a crazy question, but what's your favorite plant?
1: Yeah, I know. I get that question a lot. And a lot of times I get brain freeze because I love all these different plants. But I would say if I had to choose just one put out in my yard, it would be a Japanese maple. The reason is, is because there's so many different kinds. There's so many different growth habits. Some are large, get up 30 feet tall. Some are dwarfs and only three feet tall. They come in every color that you can think of, every kind of growth habit you can think of. You can grow them in a shrub border. You can grow them in the middle of a yard. You can grow them in a container. You can make bonsais out of them. The leaf forms are just innumerable. They're so good for people with small yards that have small spaces that they don't want eaten up. Whenever anybody says, can I?" I grow a tree and I have a 25 by 10 spot. My first answer is always a Japanese maple. So I would have to say yes on that one because they're so beautiful. They do not take over. They do not eat your house. And there's so many different kinds. There's a Japanese maple for everybody, I'm convinced.
0: It's covered a lot, but is there anything else that I should have
1: asked you? Well, I would say that uh, I'm out on bail and I expect the threat case to be thrown out of court. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just emphasize that if people are unfamiliar with me, my Grumpy Gardener column comes out every single month in Southern Living. And without any humility whatsoever, it is probably the most popular feature for good reason. <laughs> people love it. And it also gives an email address on that page that you can send me your questions. I answer every single one of them and it's free. It's good in these times of inflation.
0: This has been episode 52, The Grumpy Gardener Speaks, with Steve Bender. Thank you, Steve. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.